Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My name is Janice Fiamingo, and I'm a retired professor of English literature from the University of Ottawa, and I am now a, a men's issues advocate. In this episode, I talk to Janice Fiamengo. We chat about feminism, anti-feminism, about challenging dominant narratives about men, about the idea of the moral superiority of women, and more. This was a fascinating conversation for me, and I do think you'll enjoy it. It may challenge some of your ideas about men and women in the world today. If you are interested in hearing more from Janice, I'll put information in the show notes. The thing to follow is YouTube channel Steve Brule and the Fiamengo files, but that's in the show notes. That's it for now. The big thing is on your Twitter profile, you describe yourself as an anti-feminist. So, of course, I have to ask you, why do you describe yourself as an anti-feminist? Well, I, I, a lot of people would simply probably use a term like non-feminist or even modify feminist in some way. And as, uh, for instance, Christina Hoff Summers calls herself, I think, an equity feminist. Um, I, um, I just, I have lost confidence in the, the feminist label uh, altogether in the sense that I don't believe that there are any issues that modern feminists advocate for that actually have anything to do with justice or fairness or equality. So I, I just don't believe in the term anymore. Even the question for me um, of whether feminism was ever about equality is a, is a really good question because if you look back, I mean most people think that the first waivers, the, the 19th century uh, feminist activists who campaigned for the right to vote and for women to enter um, the professions, uh, most people would say oh, those were the good feminists and then after that you know feminism sort of lost its way and although certainly one can uh, I think agree that that uh, some of, of um, feminist advocacy had good aims it always had this sort of man-blaming anti-male animus as part of its um, you know very uh, fundamental reason for being it blamed men for what it saw as the intolerably unjust situation of women and um, you know I think any serious investigation of history shows that that is simply not the case. I was listening to one of the Fiamengo files 
this morning, actually, when I was walking and it was about the vote. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 1916, that a lot of the men who were actually fighting didn't themselves have the right to vote. Mm. And, that, and that's I mean, that's astounding to me that we don't know that. I myself spent years doing a PhD in English literature looking at um, late 19th century um, feminist advocates in, in who journalists and and essayists and novelists and and uh, you know part of what I was interested in as the historical context was the suffrage struggle and I didn't know then that there were men who didn't have the right to vote. All of the literature I read completely ignored that. I mean, that has been, it was airbrushed out of the struggle at the time, certainly by those feminists, and it's been entirely eliminated from our historical knowledge of that period. And in fact, you know, it's a really complex story, the the right to vote. Uh, Waves of men of different classes, of different races had to struggle to to have the the privilege of voting throughout the 19th century i mean up until the 1830s very very few men could vote uh, and even in the 1860s the 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 percentage of of men who were able to vote uh, it was was certainly broadened but it did not in by any means encompass all men and so we have this idea now that for centuries all men voted and denied the vote to women and that is simply not the case and uh, you know and and the, the the other thing that's really important about the the history of the suffrage struggle was that voting always had to do with um, reciprocal obligations on the part of men. Voting was understood to be a privilege and it was granted to those who in return took up obligations on behalf of their country. And the major obligation was to defend one's country and if necessary, die for it or be hideously maimed for it in time of war. And that is something that is still not widely recognized. And it's certainly something that no feminists, or at least none of the major feminists that I know about, are interested in advocating for for women. When women got the, the right to vote, they never had to take up that reciprocal obligation. And I think that um, I think that demonstrates a level of bad faith that is really appalling. And, and, and it's the thing about feminism from its beginnings that bothers me the most, that feminism has always been about shaking up the gender order and saying that women should not be confined in any way and railing against gender stereotypes but it also relies on gender stereotypes. It relies on men's willingness to sacrifice for women, and it relies on men's deference and concern for women, and it doesn't acknowledge any of the sacrifices that men have made. One of the ones that you mentioned in one of the files was about the Titanic. Yeah. That was Mm -hmm. it. Uh, something like 75% or, of men died. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, if you look yeah. at those numbers, it's, a, it's, it's extraordinary. The number of men who were expected to die uh, and, and who did. Uh, and, you know, and that was a part of that, the gender compact of that time, uh, it, that, that 
men sacrificed for women. That isn't acknowledged. It's still the case today. I mean, if you look at who dies in dangerous, dirty, um, uh, body, um, uh, body hurting, body destroying work in our societies, it is overwhelmingly men. I think men are the ones who are injured and, and die on the job, something like 95% is male. Um, still, of course, the, those who die in, in war are, are male. Uh, the number of homeless, it's something like 75% male. There's a prison sentencing gap um, that is 63% um, uh, sentencing gap that favors women. Women are less likely to be charged for, for a crime. Women are far more likely to be able to uh, get a plea deal. And if they are actually, well, they're less likely to be convicted, but if they are actually convicted, their sentences are 63% less than men's for comparable crimes. In all sorts of ways, our society still favors women still sees women as needing uh, extra protections and uh, and that's not recognized by feminists at all and the idea that feminists are interested in gender equality I think is completely undermined by the fact of those gender discrepancies that feminists never talk about. Uh, mm -hmm. There are moves right now in the UK uh, probably in Ireland as well, although I don't know about them, certainly in North America too, to it decrease the number of women who go to prison for, for serious crimes, even up to and including murder, because of this notion that um, women are women who do bad things are always victims that that's the the narrative that we hear and the idea is that that women are often um, either inducted into their life of crime through men or they they take up a life of crime because they were abused as children they were abused by men they were sexually abused you know that kind of narrative which i you know is probably true in many cases but it's true for men as well Anybody who does a serious study of male criminality will find that most men who end up committing crimes, they were not privileged men. They were also abused. They often came from impoverished backgrounds. Um, you know, they, they were often uh, encouraged to, to begin a life of crime by others or even forced into it in some manner. And, and, but yet you don't hear very many people at all, including feminists advocating for alternative forms of sentencing or, or talking about men as, as, as victims. So, you know, that's, that's the thing that bothers me so much about our contemporary discourse. Yeah, it's it's very uneven. And I know one of the other figures is suicide. I think male suicide is much higher. Yeah, all across the world, with a very few exceptions, men commit suicide at rates three and a half to four, and depending sometimes on the age group you look at, um, but, but three and a half to four times higher than women's suicide rate. And, um, you know, there are complex reasons for why that is so, but the fact that it is so certainly raises a question about notions of male privilege. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not usually the case that the privileged class is the class that kills itself more often. And, you know, of course, there are other that, that, that you know, has, has higher rates of addiction 
as well, uh, higher rates of deaths of despair, for example, which are not quite the same as suicide, but where basically the person just allows themselves to die through their lifestyle um, because they just stop caring about themselves and abuse their their bodies and and so you know the fact that that is so uh, would certainly suggest that this notion that that men live these lives of ease and privilege that they should apologize for and that all our attention should be turned towards women's problems um it, it uh, yeah it certainly raises questions about it and and um yet when you if you see campaigns about suicide it will often there will often be a female face um to the campaign because we as a society i mean i mean all i think across the western world all english speaking societies just tend to care more about women and we have a, a lot of trouble caring about men's pain and men's suffering. And why is that? Why do you why do you think that is? Uh, it's, uh, that's a really complicated question. I mean, people like um, there's a famous men's advocate named Warren Farrell um, who wrote a book uh, in the 1990s, early 1990s, called "The Myth of Male Power," and he talks about that. And other you know men's advocates have have given explanations and and. Um, a lot of people see it as having a kind of um, like psychobiological evolutionary origin that uh, societies value what is most immediately necessary for survival. So it makes sense to value women and to, to be concerned about their survival because of women's role in reproduction. And uh, so a society that doesn't look after its women is going to be a society that doesn't survive for very long at all. So, you know, some, that, that's part of the explanation, it seems. Um, but of course, I mean, ultimately, a society that doesn't look after its men is also going to be a society that's in trouble. It's going to be um, vulnerable to attacks from, from outside and it's going to become dysfunctional in various ways. Uh, so, it, so that's not the whole explanation, but it certainly seems to be the case that we, we all of us, both women and men, have a kind of preference for women and a greater sense of compassion for women. Um, there's a couple of uh, psychologists, I think Alice Eagley and Antonio Maladnik are their names, and and they have, have found this, I think they coined a term called the women are wonderful effect, which is the tendency on the part of people observing the world uh, to, to see women in more positive terms. We just tend to have more positive associations with women. There's a, also a psychologist named Roy Baumeister who has talked about this as well. Women tend to have a greater in-group preference so that if they see something, see a situation where a woman seems to be in trouble or a woman is making a demand that you know something is wrong, uh, that, that, that women will band together to advocate that something should be done about it and men tend to respond very powerfully to that and men will give money uh, you know for women's shelters or or to you know it, it, any kind of program 
that advocates for women will be supported by men mm. as well as by women. Whereas if you put a male face on whatever the charity is, or if you're trying to raise awareness about uh, domestic violence that impacts women, I mean, sorry, that impacts men and all the studies, all the reputable studies show that Yes, men can also be the victims of very severe domestic violence, and yet there are almost no shelters, no programs for men. Um, in the United States, there's a, an act called the Violence Against Women Act that has channeled billions of dollars over the years into feminist organizations and into, into programs specifically for women. If you are a man who has been, you know, is being beaten, by your female partner or indeed by your male partner and you're looking for help it's highly unlikely that you'll be able to find any even now you know in 2020 uh, and attempts to raise awareness about those kinds of issues well it's just not very successful they're met with disbelief uh, even worse they're met with a kind of revulsion like there's something in both men and women and again, this may have a you know psychobiological um, root, perhaps that we we want men to be strong. Uh, those are the men that we we want to look to, whereas weak women evoke our compassion. Weak men do not evoke our compassion. We turn our eyes away from those men. And in fact, we we often feel revulsion for them rather than empathy. So it's a mm. it's a big. It's a big problem. It's pretty extraordinary. I, I was thinking from the biological side of things, it actually, it does make sense because if you have 100 men and one woman over a lifetime, there'll only be, you know, maybe 10 children. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have 100 women and one man, you could have a thousand children. That's so there, you know, there's a biological... That's it. That, do, that makes sense biologically. Yeah, exactly. Like just in terms of the time that goes into um, you know, uh, producing a, a child on the woman's part. Uh, the, the woman needs to be protected, obviously, for the nine months that she's pregnant and then, you know, for some time after that when she is breastfeeding the child. So, you know, her, her, her actual physical existence is important in a way that the man's physical existence is not to the same degree. Yeah, if you just look at the numbers in that sense. So, so yeah. So there's a certain um, logic to to the the, the preference. Uh, men's advocates often talk about it in terms of gynocentrism. We say that that our society is 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 woman centered in that way, and that it has that kind of biological basis, and and you know always has been to. to some degree or another and much of what um, feminists now complain about some of it rightly so about restrictions that were placed on women in the past um, those restrictions didn't spring from hatred for women but from the desire and and felt need to protect those women and they were seen as fragile indeed women were in many ways fragile I mean it's almost impossible I think for us to imagine what it was like up until really very recently just a few generations ago when you know most women's lives were spent bearing and raising children and you know that that was the focus it that took all of their physical capacity and um 
And so, you know, the idea that women should have been at the forefront of, I don't know what, you know, technological innovation or, or as scholars or inventors or scientists, I mean, there were some, but, but you know, most women were bearing and, and raising children. Um, so, um, yeah, it... it uh, uh, I've, I've lost my train of thought there. Yeah, no, the, I, I'll jump in there very quickly then. Anna, I just want to, my my grandmother on my mother's side had 16 children. Mm-hmm. So that that was the norm exactly. in, in, in Ireland of that time. Yeah. So I think technology and contraceptives have changed, have allowed for a lot of the changes. I want to go back Absolutely. in time. And, and, and one more thing I wanted to say about that too is just that when men could create technologies that lightened women's burdens, they did so. I mean, in the 19th century, men created all sorts of, um, you know, domestic technology, mm. washing machines and, you know, all those kinds of things that, that made it possible for women to be, to some extent, freed from the burdens of looking after the household. Um, and then, of course, contraception as well. Uh, although there were many debates and, and struggles over that. But but by and large, men made it possible for women to be freed from many of the burdens that they had traditionally borne. And as soon as they did that, women began to enter the public sphere uh, in all sorts of different ways. So the idea that, um, you know, men, um, you know, that there was animus against women and and that, that um, you know, that... that well, that women were held back because men hated them just doesn't seem to be borne out by the facts of history. There's a really interesting book, if anybody wants to to read about it, um, by a, a British barrister and journalist named Belfort Bax, who wrote a book called, uh, published, I think, now I'm going to forget the exact date, but something like 1908, around there. And he'd been writing in the late 19th century, he'd been writing articles in the 1880s and 1890s too. And it's, the book is called The Fraud of Feminism. And there he objects to this idea that, um, you know, that there is any kind of cultural um, bigotry against women. He makes the argument that it's the other way around that that you know men care deeply about women and he even looks at cases of criminal sentencing and the way in which even then in the late 19th century it was much more difficult for example to have to to have a woman convicted of murder than a man be so and that women could use the defense that they if they had murdered their husband for example they could use the defense that their husband was a brute and that you know they murdered him in self-defense or simply because he was such a terrible person that was a defense that was never used with any success by men who murdered their wives and and Bax's point is that always in the courthouse, there was an evident sympathy that could be generated for 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 women that, that didn't exist for men. And the last thing I wanted to say about that too was that, I mean, I think the argument can be made that that societies were always, to some extent, gynocentric, successful societies in the West certainly for you know centuries and centuries. But in the past, there was a very clear distinction drawn between good women who deserved. Um, to be defended and protected, and bad women who did not deserve, who were not deserving of those those elaborate protections. What happens now? What has happened now, to a certain degree, I think, is that we no longer can 
As a society, we can't bear that notion that there should be any sort of distinction between good women who are contributing to the flourishing of their society and bad women. So we will simply no longer accept that there can be such a thing as female evil. We still accept, of course, that there is such a thing as male evil, and we know what forms it takes. It takes the forms of hyper-aggression, hyper-competitiveness, and violence. But we do not look at the forms that female evil can take. We, in fact, deny that there is such a thing as female evil. We see it's always as a result. We, we claim that it's always because a woman has been victimized. And I think that gets us into a lot of trouble. Uh, and and it, it's created problems with, you know, the Me Too movement, for example, in which we accept that if a woman simply says that something happened to her, that a man touched her or a man harassed her or a man assaulted her, that we should accept it. We can't bear the idea that there might be reasons why women would lie. We can't bear the notion that women actually might have malice toward men and might make things up in order to destroy that man. And that is a real problem in our society if we can't even talk about the possibility of female dishonesty, female culpability, female manipulativeness. Uh, and these are real issues that um, even to raise them is super dangerous for both both men and women in the public sphere. Yeah, and I have seen that myself. The idea that, uh, well, you're meant to believe all women. Yeah. And I mean, I know from my own personal experience, no, I do not believe all women. And, and yet at the same time, how bizarrely difficult it can be to say that I know. in public. Well, it's, it's not not different not difficult for you. <laughs> yeah, but I don't have much I'm not risking very much. I'm retired now. Uh you know, I had a pretty uh secure position for many years. Um I, I would certainly think twice about it if I had a different sort of position if I were a broadcaster, um if I were a teacher in the public school system. I, I mean, you know, just anything. You can get into serious trouble. The moment you say something that angers women, they don't even necessarily have to be feminist women. As soon as a movement starts up to say that you have created an environment where women don't feel safe, you're in big trouble. You're accused of, of verbal violence. You're accused of, of um, you know, making women uh, you know, uncomfortable, creating an environment where violence can be enacted towards them. and, and that's a firing offense in, in many cases where it would be ludicrous to say the same about something a woman said about a man. I mean, just last year, there was a Egyptian feminist activist and author named Mona El-Tahawi. Uh, she lives in, a, in the United States now. She was touring all over the world, uh, giving talks where she was, in a way, hypothetically advocating that women should enact vigilante violence against men in order to end rape, as she claimed. And, you know, she made up these scenarios in which she said things like, what if we killed a certain number of men every week? At what point would the patriarchy finally sit down and say, okay, let's negotiate. What do you want us to do and we'll do it? You know, she had this bizarre idea that feminists have often proffered that, you know, if the patriarchy, whatever that is, just wanted to, it could stop rape, you know, as if men could do that if they wanted to. And, you know, so she was, she claimed she was not actually advocating violence, also, although she did certainly advocate it 
um, against any man who touches any woman. She herself claimed that she had beaten viciously a man who, who groped her at a nightclub and she encouraged other women to do the same. Basically saying women have carte blanche to attack men as long as they claim that the man touched them first. Um, but, you know, she wasn't actually advocating that, that women murder men simply as a political statement, but she, she hypothesized about it. Now, I mean, that's just like, what kind of a society? And, you know, this is a woman who, yes, she has been criticized, but she also has many, many admirers. She's been invited to speak, you know, all across the world as a freedom fighter for women. And, you know, it's, it's, she can do that. She doesn't have to worry that, that, she's going to be jailed or, or, or killed or, or even fired for that. If we really lived in a, the kind of vicious patriarchy that she claims, well, she would be shut up immediately. And instead she is lauded and, and you know, paid handsomely for her speaking engagements. And, you know, it's, it's just bizarre. And, and, you know, you can't imagine a man doing that, a man standing up on stage saying, what if we killed a certain number of women every week? At what point would women finally start to pay respect to men? You know, the guy, that would be the end of his career, and rightly so. But women are given carte blanche to say all sorts of horrific things about men, and men, by and large, take it. And many men, in fact, support their right to do so and, and think that they're pointing out some important kind of truth. There was a woman, a professor at Northeastern University a couple years ago who wrote an article in the Washington Post called, Why Can't We Hate Men? It was in 2017, I believe, just at the beginning of the Me Too movement. There's a big picture of Harvey Weinstein in the article. Why can't we hate men? And the answer was, well, we can and we should because men are lousy. Men are responsible for all the terrible things in the world. Like it was an incredibly crude, simple-minded article. And it then said at the end, hey, man, if you don't want us to hate you for all millennia and for the millennia of woe you have inflicted on us, well, this is what you need to do. As if, if men are really that bad, why would they listen to what a, man, a woman is demanding they do? But she demanded that they step away from the power, vote only for feminist women, step back, don't take major roles in your society, allow women to take over the reins of society because as we all know, women are gonna do a hell of a lot better job than men have ever done. I mean, it was just an outrageous. This is a professor of sociology and women's studies at Northeastern University. She's still in the classroom. Men have to take her courses knowing that that's her attitude towards men, that she not only hates them, but can happily admit and proclaim that she hates them and be applauded for it and get published in a major newspaper. I mean, I just, I find that, and I don't know any feminist who protested that. She claimed she got hate mail. Oh, oh really? Oh, you poor thing. Why would you get hate mail for, for proclaiming your ha hatred of men? She claimed she got death threats and rape threats. Of course, she never produced any of them. But, you know, and that's the classic feminist M.O. You make these outrageous, hateful statements, and then you cry victim if you get any kind of angry pushback at all. Well, it's a pretty nice gig if you can get it, but it, to me, does not give evidence of a patriarchal, misogynistic society in which women are held down and men have all the power. It looks like the opposite to me. I heard a cat.
Music Hat again On my podcast Podcast It was a podcast Podcast It's not just that these articles are written, it's the amount of support. I, I'm yeah. aware of Mona El Tahawe. She came to, to Galway in Ireland Did oh, she? over 10 years ago. Yeah. Oh, really? And uh, I got a friend of mine to interview her for something I was recording at the time. And I was really interested in what she was saying. But now I do follow her on Twitter and it's like, it's, uh, I find it hard to even when I skim through it sometimes as the things that she comes out with, mm-hmm. uh, the levels and, and how, how have we come to the point where we don't see what's happening? Have you read or come across the, the Grievance Studies project? Um, you mean the the one with Helen Pluckrose and yeah. um, I, I know the other two ja- names and ja- James Lindsay James and Lindsay. Peter Bogosian yeah and Bogosian yeah. right yeah mm-hmm. yeah yes. so in, in in one of their papers <laughs> which was a fake a hoax paper yeah. it uh, submitted to a feminist or a gender study journal the proposal was that straight white men or certainly white men students should sit on the room of the lecture hall with draped in chains to pay, you know, to pay yeah. for their previous previous sins of yeah. the patriarchy, I suppose. Yeah. And it was accepted, accepted. or it was under review. And, and yeah. you got like, I, I just don't understand sometimes why people aren't questioning this stuff a little bit yeah, more. I know. But it's but amazing. Of, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of which, I do want to track back a little bit in time to um, you said that you did your PhD on journalism and women in journalism. And at the time, you yourself didn't question this idea of men and the vote and, and you know, World War One. Mm-hmm. What, what changed for you? So you, were you yourself a feminist? Did you call yourself a feminist? Oh, yes. Yeah, I definitely did. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's very difficult to resist the indoctrination at, um, at at university because it's just so widespread and you don't hear alternative voices. You simply don't. And uh, I mean, feminism is, uh, well, intersectional feminism, which also includes uh, critical race theory and um, post-colonialism and various other, you know, sorts of victims or grievance studies approaches. Uh, it is the reigning orthodoxy at university, has been for, for years and years. I mean, we're, we're now starting to hear some dissent and some voices raising, wow, this stuff is... This stuff is crazy. As you say, it actually advocates collective punishment of certain groups of people, which we know never ends well and is just simply on the face of it. You know, I mean, an intelligent um, 10 year old could explain to you why it's a very bad idea and why it's so unjust. But but we are actually advocating it And, and just I will, uh, will answer your question, but you know, it jumped into my head when you were saying about this hoax paper about <laughs> male students being forced to do these things to sort of repent of their forefathers' uh, putative sins. I mean, there are actual um, professors. There's one uh, in a, a, at a Canadian university uh, who has advocated that women should speak first in all university classrooms and that men should only be allowed to speak once women have had a chance to answer the questions or raise their concerns or you know make their contributions to the discussion this was put forward a few years ago um and had a discussion she's at um, an eastern canadian university i think in um 
can't remember now whether it's Nova Scotia or New Brunswick called St. Mary's. And, you know, she was met with a great rousing round of applause for this. And she actually said that she does practice this form of uh, feminist affirmation because women are silenced and women are marginalized. So I can, so these... I can probably guess what subject she teaches, but do you know? <laughs> I can't remember now. What it, and you know what it is? No, it was surprising. I, can't, I wish I could remember her oh. name. I can't remember. It, she teaches in the business school there. Okay, right. Yeah, like so, you mm. know, you'd think she'd be a sociologist or an art history specialist. Humanities, or, I would yeah, have said. Somewhere in the humanities. Yeah. But no, the corruption has spread everywhere. It's, it's, right. there, there's nowhere that it has not taken hold. And so that's the, you know, that's the thing that these crazy ideas when they're being advocated by extremely intelligent people um, and it, you know, young minds are, are um, receiving these ideas, they're, I mean, I, I blame myself for, for not uh, resisting and questioning it at the time. I wasn't even a young person. You know, I, I did a master's degree and a PhD. By the time I finished, I was 28 or 29, I can't even remember. Um, you know, so I was hardly a child, but um, I don't know. It, 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 like it's hard to actually explain in some way the power of that indoctrination. But when everyone around you accepts it, some people maybe, you know, are kind of quietly skeptical, but you don't hear voices robustly denouncing the, the hideous injustice and hatred of, of these ideologies. So you think, well, these people are, are smart and they seem like good people. And, and there's something extremely attractive about those ideologies, too. There is. And did, um, did you have favorite thinkers at the time? Oh, I love I loved them all. And the, the more radical, the better. You know, there's something so exhilarating about that conviction that you are you are advocating. You're part of a movement that is going to overthrow injustice and, you know, you're going to create a whole new world where, you know, nobody <laughs> is ever improperly treated. Of course, mm -hmm. the fact that white men in particular are going to have to pay for that, you know, for the, again, the alleged sins of their fathers, that, that doesn't strike you as, as wrong. But, uh, you know, I liked all the feminists. Andrea Dworkin, who was a radical feminist from the late 1970s, 1980s. Um, Catherine McKinnon, a very um, radical legal theorist, um, uh, Robin Morgan, I mean, I found them all compelling. I loved their anger. I loved their conviction of righteousness. And, uh, you know, of course, it's very empowering for those who um, can see themselves as righteous victims in the schema that is being advocated. And, uh, yeah, you, you know, and... and and the, the literal empowerment in the sense that you can, you can speak out at rallies, you know, in the classroom, in the public square, you can stand up and tell your story of victimization, you can make your demands, you can shame other people merely for the color of their skin or for their sex. And most people, the vast majority will listen and will not speak back to you. The power of that is incredible. All you need are a few slogans and your personal story of how you have been oppressed. And you can go really far with that. And in fact, you know, you can now get a degree on the basis of that. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a very seductive kind of ideology. So, you know, I went all in, I have to admit. And as I say, I was an adult. I, I went all in. I was very interested in it. I wrote my, my feminist PhD thesis. Um, and uh, it was really only afterwards when I started teaching. I mean, I'd already, I think, to a certain extent started to question, but, but once I got my first full-time job, which was at the University of Saskatchewan uh, in 1999, I, by that point I was in my early 30s, and th that was when the whole thing started to look like a house of cards quite quickly because I could just see that the young men in my classes were not privileged, they, were not, they did not have an entitlement mentality. They, they were just, in fact, if anything, they were puzzled, um, they were hurt by this ideology. Um, it, it had nothing to do with the way they had been brought up to behave, the way they lived their lives. And I just started thinking, like, wow, what a, what a trip, you know, to use that language, to put on these kids. These are 18, 19 year olds, clean cut guys. They've never done anything bad in their lives. They've never wanted to hurt a woman. They've never forced themselves sexually on a woman. And they're being told that because they're male, and especially if they were white, they are responsible for all the evil in the world. And the only thing they can do, a la that professor Susanna Walters, who wrote the Why Can't We Hate Men, all they can do is step back, shut up, listen, echo feminist talking points, and allow their sisters, their moral superiors, to take over the world and be thankful that, you know, that, there's, that such superior moral beings exist to tell them about the errors of their ways. That was, that was basically it. And I just thought, this is, this is just crazy. And then as soon as I started kind of investigating, um, I, you know, I, the, 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 the lies of the whole movement just became apparent to me. Okay, so the first step in you in, in seeing seeing another perspective was teaching and, and relating to the students that were in front of you. Yeah. And then, then that led you to explore a bit. It wasn't that you came across a thinker that challenged you or in a discussion. Not, it, no, so really. when you So you started to search out then. Well, you know, it took a long time. I think, I mean, it was also just becoming aware of the... Uh, obvious exaggerations and misrepresentations of feminist scholarship because you know I was I, I absolutely immersed in that world and you just you read all of these papers uh, you know and as you yourself have already said making these very extreme hateful claims the 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 extremity of it the hyperbole and also the um like the lockstep thinking nobody ever dissenting the vision of the world so uniformly the same all you know over and over again the vision of the past uh, you know and seeing things like um you know talk, talking about um the uh, the suffrage struggle and and uh, associated issues seeing claims made about how, uh, for example, women being excluded from, from war was an example of patriarchal oppression of women. 
uh, you know, like the blindness to it. The, the, so the, the men are the ones being maimed and killed in order to protect the women. And yet you're saying that that is an example of patriarchal oppression of women. And that and that those kinds of claims in every situation imaginable, even where the mangled, bloody bodies of the men are right there for all to see, uh, those claims are just made over and over again. I, you know, I, it just, yeah, it just struck me as obscene after a while. So, so, you know, so f for years then I, I just dissented and I began to, when I would review books of feminist criticism, for example, I would, I would voice my dissent, although at that point I still kind of considered myself within the feminist camp. Um, it really wasn't, a, it took me a long time, it really wasn't, I would say, until probably the fall of 2012. So this is years into my journey of skepticism. And I saw, at that point, I saw, um, this is a Canadian story, but um, the, the man that I mentioned earlier, Warren Farrell, uh, the, this men's advocate, who also began as a feminist and, and uh, finally gave up feminism because he couldn't ignore the anti-male hatred that was such a deep part of the movement. He came to the University of Toronto in the fall of 2012 to give a talk about on his most recent book. He's done a lot of writing about um, boys problems, the specific problems of boys in school. Christina Hoff Summers has also written about this, the war against boys, the ways that the entire education system now is slanted against boys in order to advantage girls. Again, you know, under the assumption that, that it's girls that are marginalized by our society and, and, you know, whose confidence needs to be boosted and whose way of learning needs to be affirmed and that kind of thing. And, and so he was talking about all of the troubles uh, with the very material consequences of, of boys, their dropout rates from school being so much higher than girls, of far fewer boys, um, young men, are attending university, far fewer finish university. Um, it's almost 60% female to 40% male at most universities now, and yet still the affirmative action measures keep going. We find all sorts of positions that are only open to women. I know that's happening in Ireland uh, uh, quite emphatically now. Uh, the, the, in, in the few places that still have a larger, like the few faculties, I mean, that still have a larger number of male students over female students, which are mainly the hard sciences and engineering. There's a very aggressive feminist drive to remedy that imbalance. And yet there are all sorts of other, um, you know, ed the faculty of education, certainly the humanities, certainly the social sciences, health sciences, even law, are now predominantly female. So he was talking about, you know, some of those issues and uh, he was almost prevented from speaking. There was a huge um, demonstration against him, crazed students. I mean, this was the beginning of really the movement of, of uh, student aggression on campus to shut down speakers with which they thought they disagreed. I doubt that anybody had actually read Warren Farrell, but they were encouraged by their women's studies professors to prevent him from speaking. They blocked the doorways to the room where he was speaking. They tore down and defaced the posters advertising his talk. Um, they, they shouted obscenities 
at the security that were brought in to try to keep order. And this was all caught on film by a friend of mine named Steve Brule. And I saw that. And I saw the fury on the, on the faces of these young people who knew absolutely nothing about Warren Farrell or about the issues that he was going to talk about. He's an extremely gentle man. I mean, you know, the idea that he's some kind of misogynist is just ludicrous. And at that point, I thought, wow, I mean, this has actually happened. This is the, the coming to fruition of the hatred and the lies about men that have been promulgated by feminist theorists for years. And wow. uh, at that point, I finally decided I, I should start doing something about it. So I tried to give a talk the following uh, spring, March of 2013 was the first public talk that um, I was invited to give at the same university, University of Toronto. I did give the talk, but it was again heavily protested. The fire alarm was was pulled, and if if it was heavily protested by that point, so what was the title, or so people were aware of your position at that point? Well, um, you know, I was a nobody really, you know, still at that point. Uh, but the title of the talk was uh, "What's Equality Got to Do with It?" and I. I forget this, what the subtitle was, but it made very clear that it was going to be a talk that con contested the claims of, of feminism and that um, you know, tried to make the, the, the argument that in fact it was young men on college campuses today uh, who are being silenced and harassed mm -hmm. and marginalized. And right around the same time, there had been a lot of attempts by young men to start men's issues awareness groups where young men could get together and talk about what it was like to be a young man in, in the world today, in the post-feminist world. And, uh, and that in itself was considered beyond the pale by feminist activists on campus. I mean, that's the degree of their certainty that they don't even want young men to be able to talk about men's issues outside of a feminist framework. These feminist activists demanded, well, they prevented these men from being able to form these groups unless they would explicitly adopt a feminist framework. So they could talk about men's issues like suicide and homelessness and fatherlessness and you know various things, but they could only talk about them within a perspective that essentially blamed men and patriarchy for causing those problems. And uh, so this was happening all across uh, North American campuses, uh, and that was the one of the, the the focal points of my talk. But uh, that was considered, you know dangerous. <laughs> yes. So did your talk actually go ahead? It then? did go ahead finally. Yeah. And did people when you say finally, it was it was stopped a few times? Or well, there, there, uh, the fire alarm was pulled just when I was about to, to start. And so we all had to leave. And then we had to wait for the fire marshal to declare that there was no fire. And then we came back in and there was, you know, a lot of heckling. And um, there was a and, very and Sorry, where, where was that again? That then? was at the yeah. University of Toronto. Okay, yeah. and were you working there at that point? No, I was at the University of Ottawa at that point, but uh, I did the following year attempt to give a talk at the University of Ottawa. That one kind of went ahead, but the fire alarm was also pulled there a couple of times, and they wouldn't, they, they 
prevented me from speaking. They banged drums and played horns and sang the Communist Internationale at that one. And yeah, I've, I've had many. I've tried to speak at the Ottawa Public Library. I've been prevented by an Antifa affiliate group. And, and uh, I, I joined up with a group called the Canadian Association for Equality, which is a group that tries to advocate for men's issues. And uh, I was especially interested at that point in just being a resource for any young man at college who wanted to come and talk about the troubles he was having or even just his frustrations. And, and uh, so I joined the, the Canadian Association for Equality and we put on all sorts of events uh, featuring speakers, some of them even calling themselves feminists. We invited Kathy Young, who calls herself an equity feminist, but is critical of feminism. We invited her to speak. Uh, Paul Nathanson, who's written a series of books about cultural misandry, he, we invited him to speak. We invited various people, and, and all of them were protested, uh, sometimes uh, hysterically so. We had a lot of trouble. It, it, the, 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 the concerted effort to prevent any alternative voice from being heard on a college campus, uh, it, it goes, you know, it's been very, uh, very, very um, aggressive for the last 10 years or so. And uh, you said that you kind of set yourself up as a focal point for young men who did want advice. So did many come to you? Um, not so many in person, although certainly some did. But from the time I gave my first talk, I began to be flooded with email um, messages from from young men. Well, not just yes. young men, older men, too, but uh, from university men, for sure. And and just other men who whose lives have been turned upside down by various encounters with the feminist establishment, whether it's men who lost everything, including access to their children following a divorce, or men who were falsely accused of something and lost their jobs, or were accused even of maybe they did it, like talking to a girl at work that they liked. And then she went and told the boss that she'd been made to feel uncomfortable and the guy lost his job over that and you know, things like that. I mean, I just I heard from so many men um, and that was really the beginning of my life as a as an advocate. What was like I didn't I had no idea I had I, I began as a skeptic of feminist claims, but I had no idea that so many men's lives had been impacted and not in the way feminists say feminists always say, oh, yeah, it's when you're used to being so privileged it's difficult not to be privileged anymore. No, 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 no. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about mild discomfort, psychological readjustments that are having to take place. We're talking about men's lives, their ability to, to earn a living, their ability to hold their head up in society, their ability to see the children that they love. I mean, we're talking about men's lives absolutely ruined. And, uh, and what the thing that struck me was that so many of them, they, they still, like, you know, they're, they're as far from the stereotype of the aggressive, entitled man, you know, contemptuous of women or whatever, the, the stereotype that feminists have of the average man. They weren't like that. All they wanted was to work with women in harmony, to work with women, you know, to have a loving relationship with a woman in their personal lives, they were happy to work with women in their, you know, professional lives. And it just seemed that they had no 
no rights at all to to uh, to an alternative point of view or to allege their innocence if they had been accused of something. Uh, I was yeah I was overwhelmed both by the injustice that they had the various injustices that they had experienced and by their continuing goodwill. The vast majority weren't even angry at women overall. They were just bewildered and devastated by the things that had happened to them. There there have been similar stories in Ireland, and I know of uh, one young, brilliantly talented man whose career was almost completely destroyed um, by a group of feminists who targeted him very publicly in a public letter with hundreds of signatories. And uh, also, claim, and he's trying to move away from that, so I'm not even going to mention his name. Yeah. He's super talented, and I hope that he's he's eventually going to, you know, be able to come back and talk about it. But uh, and also I've seen cases of women where a man might ask them out or invite them up to a bedroom and suddenly his career is going to be destroyed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, you know, um, I'm conscious of time. I, yeah. We usually I, I could keep talking to you for hours, honestly. <laughs> I mean, uh, but I, I do want to ask you very quickly. You did mention Ireland. I am in Ireland. Um, are you aware of much of what's going on in Ireland yourself? Have you heard of anything? Have you been in contact with people from Ireland? I, I do get letters from from Irish men. And certainly the one issue that I'm really aware of is that there is a very strong move going on um, in uh, a number of Irish universities to have women-only positions because there is certainly uh, this notion that women have been held back you know, for, for centuries and now at last it is women's time and so we're going to create all these profession professorships that are only available to women. Uh, and that's, you know, I, that's, yeah, that's all we could have, spend an hour just talking about that, this notion that we're going to make a generation uh, or more. I mean, certainly that kind of hiring has been going on, maybe not quite that officially. It's been going on in Canada and the United States for decades. Uh, it creates all sorts of problems. Inevitably, of course, it creates resentment on the part of the men who are excluded from those positions, understandably so, but it creates a lot of problems for the women who are hired into them as well. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's just one of the things, really. I mean, I, I don't have my finger on the pulse of what's going okay. on in, in Ireland any yeah. any further than that. But I expect that in many ways, a lot of... A lot of the issues are, are very similar. Uh, you know, you're, the point you make about the power of a woman's word to destroy a man's life. Um, I have heard from so many men who have, have had that happen to them and the viciousness of these women, um, the willingness to, to yeah, have a man um, disgraced forever and to lose his employment and often it's clear from what the women have to say about him that he irritated them. You know, that's it. He, he was either um, uh, overly persistent in trying to ask them out on a date or, you know, he committed some very mild act of indiscretion. And we're not talking about rape. Uh, while they were both drunk, uh, and and that is enough to 
you know, bring down all the forces of social disapproval and penalty upon him. And unfortunately, many employers are willing to accept even an anonymous letter claiming that so-and-so is a danger to women because this is what he has allegedly done and without any due process, certainly without any presumption of innocence or any proper investigation, the man can lose his job. It's, uh, it's incredible. Things, well, hopefully things will, well, they have to change. Things are always changing anyway. I yeah. also look, I have, I have a little boy and I think that in schools there's almost a pressure on little boys to not be, not behave as little boys. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I see, mm -hmm. I see that happening uh, mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So for people who have sons or yeah. husbands, fathers, brothers, people, guys that we love in our lives, you know, it, it's, it's concerning, I think. Yeah. Well, and that's um, the, you know, that is going to be the thing that will change, change it. And I mean, I would love to see marches organized across the world on a certain day that could be chosen. And the marches would be called Not In My Name, and they would be Women and Families advocating for men and against feminism and, and we need to have way more women they don't have to you know be men's rights activists or anything that just standing up and saying i don't want this done to my son i mean and i think mothers of sons in particular have the moral power to say that i don't want this done to my son in the name of feminism that'll be what it will take for for this incredibly powerful cultural movement to get turned around. Talk to me, talk to him, talk to me. That's it for this episode of Spokes with thanks to Janice Fiamengo for joining me. Don't forget to subscribe to Spokes and check out our other episodes. Spokes is produced by Colette Colfer and Terry Hackett. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.